Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a Wednesday edition of the Shotgun Start. It is April 22nd. Andy, how are you doing? Brendan, I'm doing uh, okay. How are you doing? It's kind of a, a, a soft little Brendan there. Well, yeah. I, you know, on. It's on. I, I found out that Sumo Citrus uh, season's nearing an end. It's, <laughs> it's, almost, it's only two weeks of it left, which is it's very bad news. And uh, and and then uh, governor of Illinois saying we might be shelter in place here in in Illinois till into June, which is just not good. Thanks. All right. (laughs) Well, tonight we have, or this morning, whenever you're listening to this, we have uh, Sean Martin come on Nick Faldo. And as we tend to do with Sean and a big subject like Faldo, we uh, we went long. Real long. So it's going to be broken up into two parts. His wife was yelling at him to finish up. My wife's probably getting frustrated. Your wife's probably had enough. So we couldn't just record deep into the night. Um, so we will cover kind of his, his upbringing, his amateur days, his first four majors, a little bit about you know his many wives, and then we'll get to part two. My wife's busy watching that 90-day fiancé show. Have you heard about this show? No, I haven't. It's about um, people that have like uh they get, they get engaged to people from foreign countries so they get the 90 day visa what and they come to the states and at the end of the 90 days they have to decide if they're getting married or not wow she's been watching this it, it it's the most ridiculous show what a concept oh it's just insane the people on the show are just <laughs> I like to did a episode here, episode there. It's just unbelievable that TV show. All right, uh, any news we need to get to? Any podcast business we need to discuss? BixbyCoffee.com, Shotgun Start Blend. We got a call with those guys later this week. It sounds like few more, few more of you are subscribing given recent events, um, which we appreciate greatly. Thank you all. Um, Bixby Shotgun Start Blend. You know we have proceeds portion of that. Go straight into our pocket and capitalism. But so we appreciate you guys supporting the pod via that way. Um, I'm going to do my cold brew recipe one of these days. Do you're going to do it on the Instagram story, right? Show us how you do your cold brew. Is it yeah. a recipe or is it just a process? It's like, just a pro- it's okay. a process. I don't know if it's 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 my recipe. I don't ha- I didn't copy anybody. You know. Sure ripping through bixby i i'm a paying customer of the shotgun start blend i like subscribed on my own and set the limits and i get two bags i think it's every three weeks and i don't think it's be enough given the at-home situation and how much my wife and i are you should crushing. start making some cold brew 
Why cold brew? Is it last longer? Does it go longer? Well, you, you just mean? when you brew, you brew a big batch and then you you're set for a little right. while. So BixbyCoffee.com. It's probably going to be getting warm in DC here pretty soon. Yeah, that's true. Shotgun start blend. We are going to have, I think, a promo or a, a sort of a contest. contest giveaway, not a promo giveaway, coming up soon too. So thank you guys for your support. Maybe that. merchandise too. I've been dipping my toe around about getting merchandise? some stuff set up. I don't okay. know though. I appreciate that. Good. Uh, thanks for dipping your toe around. I'm not of much use when it comes to merchandise. I might have to get my best man on it on the case. Who's that? Will Knight? Will Knight. <laughs> okay. Uh, quick other news. You see Bryson's talking about going to a 48-inch driver? No. He's putting holes in the, his net, and it, you know he's now at 239 or something. He yeah. weighs more than Saquon Barkley. You know what? He weighs more than me. That's kind of incredible. Now, granted, I am I have no muscle, but my because my brain has been broken by golf, my like weight loss goal was to be in the Bryson zone by Masters Week. And I think I was there. Now I'm just a fat dad still. I'm not, you know, arm wrestling, you know, other dads in the neighborhood or needing muscle. I don't know what my swing speed is, but I can't believe he's that big already. I'm also six four, I should say. He's six, six something. It's it's unbelievable. That he has put on 40 pounds since September. 40 pounds. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous thing. But I'm guessing that he knows if he works out twice a day, maybe more, he can drink all the chocolate milk he wants. My Lord, he's got a cow in the freezer. Did you see that Billy Horschel kind of popped him? No. So, so somebody on that on whatever it must have been Twitch or whatever Bryson thingy, he, yeah, yeah. Um, Billy and somebody asked him to said, you know, you just have a gut, and Bryson's like, I don't have a gut. So Horschel, I don't know if he deleted the. T- oh, here's what he said: A person who says he doesn't have a gut would show you he doesn't have a gut, but he doesn't. Just saying. Oh, whoa. So now he's talking about going to 48-inch driver. Did you know the USGA? He's like, I, this is a Brentley Romine article. I definitely use a 48-inch driver if I could control it. I generate so much more speed, but I need to be, I need it to be light enough. We're going to mess with that. Trust me. If the USGA allows me to go to 48 inches with the drivers uh, and I hit it just as straight as my 45 and a half, why not? Why not yet? I didn't know the USGA prohibits golf chefs from exceeding 48 inches. Is that, is that, that. the Yarmo rule? <laughs> Must have been the Yarmo rule. The Yarmo was hitting one that was 57 inches as recently as what? Like 99 or mid 90s, 57. I mean, I don't, I don't think Bryson could play in the Yarmo territory. I hope he goes to 48 inches. Just his swing looks. I mean, I know nothing about the golf swing, but it looks just like he's trying to make the ball explode into thin air. It's just this compact. I don't know. Whatever. I don't want to get into this analysis of Bryson, but I, I love that he's posting videos about forty-eight inches driver. And he's when? Where does this madness stop? Is he going to be never like stops two sixty? He said he was trying to get to two seventy. 
No, he didn't. Yes. He said if he can get to 270 without losing flexibility, that's what he wants to get to. <laughs> Isn't he like six one? Six feet? What? what remember that? remember how he looked at the President's Cup? Yeah. He weighs 20 more pounds than that now. <laughs> Wait, but I don't understand the 270 thing. That that boggles to my mind. He's not playing left tackle. He's six one. <laughs> Six foot. He plays golf. He's six one in the program. What? What's he trying to do with two seventy? Is he trying to be all muscle? I don't know. How is that going to work at six? I mean, this is another area of not not my expertise. I'm trying to envision Bryson as two seventy, waddling up to the first tee at the Masters. I mean, is he gonna be able to take the driver up above his waist? Well, that's his, that's his thing. That's his flexibility. His, if he, as long as he doesn't lose flexibility, he's insisting that he's not losing any flexibility. I don't know if I believe that two seventy quote. I'm gonna need to see that. Okay. All right. Other news. Um, Ryder Cup is deba- debating having no fans. Uh, people are like furious about this like that's not even a Ryder cup at all i would just say i mean it's yeah the fans make a Ryder cup much better than if you had none but you know what's better than a Ryder cup with no uh what's worse than a Ryder cup with no fans is no Ryder cup at all right i mean i don't know I, just i i guess like i can't believe the level of anger around this and how incredulous people are about this concept i, th- I this- think we're just in a, in a time where the country is very fractured in the in this and to- any topic surrounding this virus well yeah i'm not even yeah totally but i'm not even setting i'm setting that aside like what i don't understand is how angry how people think this is just like not a non-starter like I don't know. I'll, I'll take the match play. I'll take the Ryder Cup over not, nothing at all. So that I don't have much more comment beyond that. I, I'm just surprised at how um, aghast people are at this is that this is even a, a discussion. So, um, and then last but not least, the uh, World Golf Hall of Fame adding adding a new member. It, it, it's uh, you know becoming a richer experience down there. At the where is that Ponte Vedra? If, if I I really loved uh, from last uh, episode with Clayton how he scoffed scoffed at Ken Schofield getting in, and this is just the same thing. Tim Fincham in just because he's he's the commissioner. Is there that? Were, do you think there's just like if you're a commissioner of the PGA Tour, since the PGA Tour essentially owns the World Golf Hall of Fame, you get in? I I don't know. I think so. Maybe. I, I mean, so the, just think at the class. Tiger Woods. Marion Hollis. Tim Fincham. There's one more player to be named, I guess. Yeah. But it's just like, I don't know. You go Tiger, Marion Hollins, and then Tim Finch. I, I, I immediately thought of Clayton's little... It, it got lost in a 45 minutes of just great anecdotes and stories and one-liners but yeah ken schofield's in the hall of fame i don't know about that just it's a real quick jab he got in there and the players i mean he was the commissioner in the tiger era i don't want to i don't want to bang on him i guess there's still a way you can screw that up and he he propelled it in a way and kept the tour together but 
I, I just give him some award or some recognition or something or a plaque or whatever. I, I don't know. Hall of Fame seems like At, At, Adam Shupak, who wrote Dean Beeman's uh, biography, Driving yeah. Force. Yeah. So he, he, I'd say that he's pretty pro commissioner. Also, has a knowledge base on kind um, of what's a good commissioner, what a commissioner does, what they don't do, kind of thing. He wrote an article just saying, you know, this probably isn't the time for Fincham to get in over a lot of players. And it's on golfweek.com if you want to read it over a lot of players like that aren't in yet. You know, is this the time to put Fincham in? Um, you know, he, he led, you know, he points out he led the, the tour through some very, uh, prosperous times sure he said you know uh after in 94 after dean beeman passes baton but uh, passed him the baton but fincham's been richly rewarded for it according to the tours 2017 990 earned 12 million and another 6 million in reportable compensation from related organizations so it's like point is like you know yeah. if you're making that much money do you need this you know hoopla of being in the world golf hall of fame is is golf like really a different landscape because of Tim Fincham? You know, and and the best is this Peter Jacobson quote. Dean's left him a Mercedes with a tank at a, a quarter full, and all Tim has to do is keep putting gas in it. He did. Uh, and Tiger came along and made it even easier to fill it up. So I, I, I don't know. I, I here's the thing. I don't have like the requisite sort of respect and cherishing of the Hall of Fame to get this angry about this. Yeah. Right? Like the Hall of Fame is what it is. It's scary players shouting about the slammer and the squire and all that stuff. And it's I, you know. counting the players as a major. <laughs> so I, I, I do I think I, I it just doesn't seem I, I imagine there's a healthy amount of backlash to this, but I don't have the ability to get that worked up about it. I, I probably wouldn't have put them in, but it is what it is. All right. Should we do an ad read? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Our friends at Rucket are back. They're still with us sponsoring um, during these, you know, what was supposed to be a normal spring sponsorship has turned into a quarantine spring sponsorship. Uh, Ruckets, Rucket.com. Our promo code is SGS. Is it just SGS, right? SGS 15. Are you sure that's not I'm positive. Damn it. Okay. SGS 15 on Rucket. You get 15% off orders, $100. Rio Bar is SGS. Just SGS. I can't keep them straight. Okay. So Rucket.com, you know, I think they're pretty much out of the woods with the initial rush of orders. We had someone contact us tonight. This is not part of the planned read. I don't know the love that we're talking about it, but I'm just trying to give them props. Someone DM'd us tonight saying they were trying to fix, still looking for their order. I I passed it on. They said it's already been shipped. This is like the very end of the first real crushing that they got when Amazon sort of said, you know, this is an essential and the fulfillment they had to adjust on the fly. So I, I think, you know, they're getting more and more nets in in the next two weeks. They're expecting a much larger order at some point in the next two weeks. Hitting nets are the only things out of stock. They have their chippers, their short game sharpeners, putting greens, a bunch of uh, you know the baseball tools, the rebounder, baseball, lacrosse stuff, soccer goals. We have a good soccer goal that we use a ton. We started doing the chippers indoors, 
so they can't hit him over the fence. Now we don't have a ton of room, but you know, the small room. They've got the the chipping game that uh, whack a hack thing, whatever mm-hmm. it's called. Yeah, comes with, uh, like a little turf mat, right? Did you get one of those? I think I got one. Yeah, but I mean, I don't use it in the yard because we just sit off the grass. But that like, beautiful so we, grass you grew. Let me tell you, the grass <laughs> is amazing. It's literally my pride and joy right now. My wife thinks I'm the biggest loser, and I am. I never thought I grew up to be this way. But I like go out there and just like look at it, stare around. It's it's really pathetic. You've been putting any stuff down in the, in the spring? Any, uh, you know? I did some, uh, yeah, I put like this thicker, grow it, make it thicker stuff when some weaker spots. And then, uh, yeah, it got... I don't want it. It got chopped up. It was all for naught. Mower came and rolled over and sucked up all the seed and probably blew it all over the place. So, um, yeah, the grass is looking good. But anyways, inside they have these little mats that we use. So we throw those down on the floor or the carpet in the basement. We've been doing chipping and they can't hit it over the fence. It's a contained area. It's supposed to be like 65 here tomorrow. I'm going to get the I'm going to get the net out. And I'm going to get my chippers out. I might do like an hour of practice. My dad got a net. My brother got a net. A lot of friends have gotten nets. It's like 36 degrees, I guess, in Cleveland. Wind chill was 25, but it's, I guess, going away. They're going to put them up tomorrow. Uh, all right. So they everything else in stock, nets coming into stock. They're kind of through that first crush of like backlog orders. And uh, they're sticking with us. They, they've been a good partner for us uh, here in the spring. SGS is the promo code. SGS15. We just talked about that. Rucket.com. All right, let's get to Sean Martin, part one of Faldo. We're having lots of Wi Fi issues, dropping in and out. I think everyone's mic was on, I believe, that. It we was. Got that much. So it was getting late, and we just needed to, you know, chop this up into part two. We'll have a lot more uh, color coming on Friday. We now welcome in Sean Martin from PGATour.com and uh, the PGA Tour. Not not a player, but a content maker. What, what's your senior editor, senior writer, something like that? Yeah, that's uh, very correct. We had this discussion, I think, last time. Yes. What, what's correct? You senior get promoted editor. every time. Senior okay. editor. I didn't know you said all of the above, you know, the way it came off. So Sean joins us to discuss Nick Faldo. What's uh, the next p- position up? Uh, I don't know. Managing editor? I like where I'm at. I'm content right now. <laughs> That's good. We should all I'm, be just gl- I'm just glad we're finally doing this pod. There's been a lot of delays. Then Andy kept teasing a very special I was getting very excited. My ego would run a little bit when I'd hear that. Then it turns out it was Jeff. I thought he was prepping my appearance. <laughs> yeah, I did feel bad when you're like, oh, man, special <laughs> shotgun start treatment. So kind of you. All right, so today's subject is foul, though. It's a, it's a massive subject, right? I mean, Smartin went and bought a freaking autobiography and is this read the it. First book? Is this the first book that's been read for uh, Shock and Start? I got to think so. Okay. I think that's right. You can expense it to us. Uh, you know, it's, it's a credible expense for this project. So, we can, we uh, can repay you in Bixby uh, <laughs> coffee or... Uh, or or cash rocket credit i need that backyard net for my three-year-old <laughs> uh so he's he's plowed through an autobiography we've read quite a bit today and over the last i don't know week 
but there's no way we're going to hit on it all. I think Faldo is probably the most uh, accomplished player we've done so far. Andy, is that accurate? I think, right. I, you know, don't, don't dismiss Marco Mira like that. Oh, come on. <laughs> we could, we're like a minute into this. You're already going at Marco. Mira. I'm not going at him. I'm just trying to, trying to make sure his reputation isn't drug, drug through the mud. Uh, so again, this, we, I'm sure we are leaving stuff out. This is a massive career. There's no way we could cover everything. I, I've got more going to go here, but you know, it'll still be long. It could have been doubly long, you know, based on Faldo's career life and, and, you know, many oddities. I've got to say the book was really good. I was afraid that he might just gloss things over, but he gets really pretty deep into it. Uh, I was I was impressed by the book. I thought he was pretty forthcoming. It's in the vein of the Agassiz autobiography of Open. Uh, one, I haven't read that one, but I've heard about it. I don't know if it goes that deep. I just don't know if he ha- had the same amount of turmoil and travails. I mean, he definitely had some personal travails, and he gets into those, but I don't know if it hit the levels of, of Agassiz. All right, let's get the nuts and bolts, Andy. Right. Let's get the summary of how we could kind of boil this down into his accomplishments and career. Nick Faldo. Sir Nick. Also known as Foldo at one point. Foldo from the yeah. British tabs. The British tabs loved Nick Faldo. They just went after him all the time. Yeah. Um, this is from, I think, a Rick Riley SI article. I forgot to write it down. My bad. This is my fault. The point is, it has taken longer than it should have for Faldo to be acclaimed as an outright winner. He is He is more than a star. The PGA Tour has plenty of those. He is a champion and a flat-out great golfer. Faldo has proved he can play with the lead. He has proved he can charge from behind. He has proved he can play on both sides of the Atlantic, on U.S. Open courses, British Open Links courses, on soft greens and hard. He is the only player in the world today who can make those claims. I love that paragraph. I read that same article. I think that is uh, that is Riley. I believe mm-hmm. um, it just this which, this came after I think his uh, Open Saint Championship. Andrews. Yeah, at St Andrews. So, give us some uh, nuts and bolts. Nuts uh, and bolts. Uh, go ahead. Started playing at age fourteen. He says he shot 78 in his first round, but he that's minus three lost balls. He didn't know the rules, so he didn't take penalties for lost balls. Wasn't he also playing with the sprinklers on or something, as yeah. I read? And he and just like kind of did, yeah, didn't know he was supposed to really putt or something, too. It, you know. Questionable 78, but there probably... Um, so he turned pro four years later at 18. He was one of the best amateurs in... Uh, in Britain, which we'll when, get into. When you say started playing golf, I mean literally just picked up a club. Didn't like start competitively, start seriously, like just started, touched a club for the first time, started really playing golf at 14. Literally watched the 1971 Masters, uh, won by Charles Cootie, and was so enamored with Jack Nicholas, who I think finished runner up, that he wanted to play immediately and was enamored with Augusta National as well and, and the Masters and the whole scene. and and that's what got him started playing. He played other sports before then. But yeah, it seems you know, a lot of people say, oh, I started playing when I was 15, but they actually had some familiarity with it. Yeah. But uh, it was literally I picked up a club when I was 14. You know, Westy and Darren Clark would have a lot of respect for Faldo because he was really described as a true sportsman. 
Not a little wimpy. Yeah, wouldn't have gotten shoved into the locker like the like the poor right. amateur at the Dunhill. Let's rip through the nuts right. We are so off track already. Then we're going to go back to childhood. Okay. All right, six major championships on his career. Three Masters, 89, 90, 96. Three Opens, 87, 90, 92. Four European PGA Championships, including three in four years, 78, 80, 81, and then he won in 89. Three other PGA Tour wins, Heritage Jarrell, Nissan, which was Riviera. Um, 20 European Tour titles. Eight other wins, which included two Johnny Walkers, two World Match Plays, and one World Cup. Two European Tour Order of Merits. Three European Tour Player of the Years. He won the Rookie of the Year, the Sir Henry Cotton Award, which he actually joined Sir Henry Cotton in a distinction later in his career uh, in 77. PGA Player of the Year in 90. Not PGA Tour Player of the Year, PGA Player of the Year. Spent 97 weeks at world number one. This is unofficial. This was me counting, manually going through the world rankings. 356 weeks in the top 10 in the OWGR. And, you know, the important thing to note with the OWGR and Faldo was... Manually counted that. Yeah. Okay, so give or take a few, 356. It's, it's, how, long, how long did that take? Not very long. Okay. Only 356 clicks. <laughs> no, it, it didn't take that long. Like, Traffic you know, at OWGR.com's through the roof today. You could you can see, you know, it, like for certain years, you could just go yeah. 52, you know? Sure. Yep. <laughs> um, right. It was just like when he was on the fringes is when you have to do the yeah. do the work. Um and that that doesn't so in eighty three won five times and obviously the OWGR wasn't around then um, so that he probably would have gotten into that top ten in that year for sure um, he played in eleven straight Ryder Cups from seventy seven to ninety seven more matches than any other player twenty three victories uh, nineteen losses and four halves on his career. Are you ready for his ten-year peak run? I yep. couldn't. I, I couldn't I pick just, out the five years on the Ryder Cup seventy-seven. I assume that's been eclipsed by Mickelson now. Uh, maybe right. Maybe uh, it's European Tour, European player. I thought right. one of the most impressive things about him was he, well, he was the youngest Ryder Cupper ever at the time. So he was a Ryder Cupper at twenty, I think they said. Mm-hmm. Um, Rookie year. Just, Making the Ryder Cup six years after you picked up a club for the first time, I think is one of like the great sort of encapsulations of how he worked and, and quickly. It's a ton of natural talent, but work ethic there really from the start. Six years he's on the Ryder Cup. Six years later he's on the Ryder Cup after picking up a club for the first time. All right, let's do the peak. Ten-year peak run. I was... I was going to try and do a five-year or two, but it was just too difficult to choose which five years. Yeah. Uh, so, 10-year peak run. So, I, I, let's do the majors first. I tweeted oh. this. So, majors, 38 starts, six major championships. What years are you saying? What 10? Uh, this would be 87 to 96. Okay. 
38 major stars, six major championships, three runners up, three third, four fourths, two other top tens, and only one miscut in the majors. U.S. Open, oh, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's 16 percent of the time he teed it up in a major. For 10 years, he won. 24 percent of the time, he was in the top two. 32 percent of the time, in the top three. 42 percent of the time, in the top four. 47 in the top 10 and 97% made the cut. So on top of that, he had 13 other European tour titles, one PGA tour win and six other wins. Uh, So during this run in total, 246 OWGR starts that counted on the OWGR, 25 wins, which is 10%, 29 seconds, uh, so his top two percentage finishing first or second was 22% over two, 10 years. Um, three top 10 or three third to 10. He finished 73 times. He finished third to 10th. So his top 10 percentage was 52% of the time, 10 years he finished in the top 10, 52% of his, the time he played. And then he missed cut. He only missed 18 cuts. He won more than he missed. He had more wins than missed cuts. Missed cuts. In 10-year time. 7% missed cut. 93% of the time he made the cut. So that's a lot. you have anything else on the, from the data? Or uh, just one other thing. In 1990, yep. so he wins two majors. He missed the U.S. Open playoff. He had, like lipped out a putt to get into the playoff there. by Medina. one. So he missed by one at Medina. And, he, and that year, he was 22 shots better than the next best aggregate score in majors. Yeah, I would say um, you, you just gave us a lot of really objective data, like to kind of you know summarize how great he was. Subjectively, it seems like more than anyone, and, and consistently across multiple years, there was like real grand slam talk about Faldo. And I'm not talking about just the 91 you mentioned. Obviously, that was an easy, that was a, a close one. But try to think of, in our lifetimes, legitimate runs at, uh, not, le- I mean, legitimate's a subjective term in and of itself. How close are you actually to winning the slam? Speeth in 15, I think, was close. But it just feels like this was constantly a hype at the start of so many years. Guys writing, you know, their season previews in January, whatever it is. Like can Faldo win the slam? That's even before a major started. It wasn't just '92. It was a lot of years there in the heart. I saw even in '96, Jaime Diaz was writing like, "Could Faldo win the Grand Slam this year?" And this was after kind of really the end of his peak, and after a few. That's because he. That's because he was on Lady Number Three at that point. He was happy again. We'll get into the Lady. (laughs) I forgot to add that. Two divorces. <laughs> Seems there's so such a correlation. I feel like two it it, two as as in this prime. Oh, okay. In this, <laughs> all right, <laughs> we're only doing prime year divorces. Yeah. Okay. There all were right. three different years where he finished in the top four in three majors. It's and like the Grand Slam makes sense. I mean, he won the Masters three times. He was a monster at the Open Championship. Uh, you would think he would have won a U.S. Open. That's kind of surprising. And then you just throw in a PGA. Like it seems doable. So he, he, here, just the player, the players in golf history with more majors than Nick Faldo, Arnold Palmer, uh, eleven. Arnold 11. Palmer, Sam Snead, Gene Sarazen, Bobby Jones, 
Henry Varden or Harry Varden, my bad. I don't know where Henry came from. <laughs> uh, Tom Watson, Gary Player, Ben Hogan, Walter Hagen, Woods, Nicholas. So, I mean, well, he's essentially when you look at it past 1950, it's Jack, Tiger, Watson, Palmer, and him. Ton of Hogan and player Hogan comparisons and all the reading that we did. Yeah, feels like Hogan was always like we got that with Strange too a little bit, but that was mostly just because of the back to back U.S. Open thing. But Hogan is the reference point for like all these articles, basically on everyone we've done. There, there's just the so demeanor, much. the ball striking. Yeah, came out a lot. The work be, ethic, the work, work ethic, a little frosty with everybody else. You know, not really talking to competitors, talking too much to media. All right, should we get in Andy, anything else, Andy? That's that's all I got right now. I mean, I think objectively, statistically, he's the best of his generation. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. Yeah. It's crazy, though. It was pretty much over after the 96 Masters before he even turned 40. I think that's one reason he maybe gets a little shortchanged is that he was pretty much done before he was 40. Well, we've it's interesting. We've seen that now a couple times, right? Lyle. I mean, well, Granted, Faldo had a much longer and prolific, more prolific, prolific career. But I'm telling you, we've talked about this. There's a 10 year thing. Yeah. yeah. And he talked too in the book about how much all of the personal stuff, the divorces, the remarriages, like that was a huge factor, he said. And finally, he just ran out of gas, basically, because it was so hard dealing with all of that stuff. I just self-inflicted, he... but still difficult. I assume the way he is too. There's only so many years you can be like that in terms of a, a ball beater, as Clayton called him. It, it, like VJ, I guess, is still doing it, you know. But I imagine there's a lot of burnout to that approach. It's just VJ not- only had like ten great years, though. Yeah, VJ was a late bloomer. I mean, it was a he, yeah. yeah, it was a late bloomer. Uh, yeah. Nick was not. That was one of the biggest takeaways for me. Was you always hear, oh, there recreated himself with Ledbetter, became a great player. But really, he was a great player, recreated himself with Ledbetter, and became a, a greater player. Like, he was Europe's, uh, maybe not best player, but up there with, you know, the other guys you guys have had on here talked about, Woozy and Sandy Lyle and stuff. And I didn't realize how good he actually was before he started going to Ledbetter. Yeah, that 83 season, he almost, he had the... the Order of Merit. Yeah, he had the Order of Merit, and he he had a close call in the Open that year. Yeah, he blew a late lead and he talked basically that was one of the big impetuses for realizing he had to make drastic changes. Couldn't that, fight he, the ball. Yeah. And he he gagged and then he played with Jack Nicholas that year at Torrey Pines and he said he just saw what Chris was and realized he did not have that. Well, who would be the other arguments for the player of this era? The Savvy. Savvy and Norman. Norman, I saw I read towards the end, like obviously Norman would became kind of the main head head guy nick price was in there for a little bit he won the second most majors during this i era, think but... savvy yeah but savvy was a you know how far ahead was savvy savvy's the same only age a couple of years like i, I know but turning pro only a couple Sev- years faldo's first act like pre-led better it was savvy and then post led better it was norman i think week in week out norman was probably better but he just yeah. didn't get it done in majors whereas faldo was able to obviously just killer in majors well norman has almost twice as many wins right i mean 80 some wins to 40 some wins i think wasn't that i mean obviously the the wins 
when it when it mattered more however we want to amplify majors <laughs> i think faldo you would put ahead of norman there, there was something too about when faldo and norman were in the same group it was just it was just really bad news for the shark <laughs> i think rick riley had a line like he sliced him up like the shark up like sushi or something like that rick riley had a lot of lines oh I god i read it so much rick riley today just remind me to talk about the 305-pound amateur from Clemson. <laughs> <laughs> Played in the first Masters that Faldo won. Riley's got some Zaners that would get him in trouble now. Uh, okay, Fal- uh, Smartin, you want to go into kind of his childhood? You read the autobiography. You know, where, why, How do we get to this point at 14 where he decides to touch club? Yeah, I think the second page of the autobiography was really where I knew this was going to be good. Uh, he talks about he was in the Hertfordshire County Under Stroke Championship, and he says he peed himself before the race. He was so nervous, and I had to read it twice. I'm like, did he write that he peed himself? And he definitely he did. He he got suit, which luckily swimming, if you're going to pee yourself, that's the sport you want to pee yourself in. Uh, and he won. So a good sporting uh, upbringing. Then he got into cycling, which actually, so his one of his coaches early on in cycling was a guy who won a bronze medal at the Tokyo Olympics. And the coach told him, when you get on that bike, you've got to hate the other guy's guts. And Faldo called it one of the most important pieces of of advice I've ever received. That kind of was the foundation for the whole kind of lone wolf kind of thing. And he says, that's why people thought he hated Sandy Lyle was, I think, because he let that kind of slip in an interview. And so I thought he literally meant he hated Sandy Lyle when in reality he was being competitive. So he gets into cycling. And then finally, yeah, that, uh, the Masters. A quick question. Yeah. Why hasn't Cernick gotten in on this Peloton challenge? That's a great question. He posted a, a video today. I think he's definitely been lifting. He's, he's a big, big guy. I think he's, a friend of mutual friend of ours lives on his street. Well, I'll talk lives, to you. About, he we'll lives go. in Ponte Vedra. Yeah. Uh, I've seen him. I've seen him in a coffee shop. Um, he's always doing I PGA tour doing. coffee shop. No, no. Uh, unaffiliated. He's always doing crazy workouts, like in his yard stuff. He like looks that. big, man. Yeah. Should get get some Faldo workouts going. Um, so then he fall, falls in love with golf. He used to cycle to the course. He built like some wood contraption for his handlebars. He claims that he was once stopped by the police for going faster than thirty-five miles on his bicycle uh, going to the course. Autobiography in Liberty. Yeah. thirty-five miles an hour is pretty fast. Uh, dropped out of school at sixteen. And basically became a full-time amateur and then was having a lot of success on the amateur circuit. But a lot of people were pretty peeved, basically, that he dropped out of school, was a full-time amateur. Basically, they called him a, a professional amateur. Um, so as he was starting to kind of dominate. What the, year did uh, he drop out of school? He's 16, you said? Yeah. I think he, and he was yeah. born in 57, so 75. Yeah. So this is four years after. He wins the English amateur in So it's four years after he started playing. Um, Can- didn't make either Walker Cup team uh, just because of bad timing. <laughs> He says the Walker Cup team was picked nine months early, which he called a uh, a purely very British move because he wins the English Amateur right before the Walker Cup and can't get on the team since it's already been picked. Yep. yep. Uh, Can you imagine if that happened now? Yeah. Well, there's one anecdote in here. I think because he beat Azinger in the 87 Open. Yeah. And Azinger's like the leading money winner or something on the tour at the time. And he wasn't eligible for the Ryder Cup because he didn't complete his like class A, class a <laughs> etiquette training as for the PGA of America. So he couldn't be on the Ryder Cup team. He's like, 
you know, he yeah. won multiple times on the PGA Tour. He wasn't on the 87 Ryder Cup. Team. It was the same thing with Bob Tway, who I want to say 86, he wins the P. I think he won like four times, but because he was a rookie, he, uh, he couldn't get on the team. Anyways, yeah, get back to yeah. He never made the never Walker Cup just by the oddities of can, schedule. Can I add one thing about about that I found about Faldo's childhood in here? Since we're past this, for his twelfth birthday, he was given a new bicycle. Yeah, and he took it to the garage, dismantled it, and put it back together just so you knew exactly how it worked. And he was uh, I <laughs> just went. And- Took it apart. <laughs> took it, brand new bike. Took it all apart. He's twelve years old. Takes it all apart, so he knows exactly how it works. So Fitting. just to add a little more context. He was an only child, and <laughs> there was some story about how his mom went to like play tennis once when she was a kid, and like she was at a club or something, and she was like embarrassed because she hadn't been grounding, like was the term trained. So they were basically like. I'm going to have one child and one child only, and he will be trained and given support and be able to do whatever he wants. And so they like trained him as whatever you're talking about, cycling, swimming, cricket. They were taking him to opera. Like they weren't like necessarily of great means They were middle-class, I think, but Mm -hmm. you know, he was given basically everything and to the point where like, sure, drop out of school to play golf full time and become even better. You know, two years, only two years after he had taken it up. So, um, and then that, that was just like you said, from watching the masters, the 71 masters. So. Oh, we got to talk about the college career, uh, yeah. since it came yeah. up in previous spotlights Ten weeks at Houston. So he and Sandy went to Houston. Uh, Sandy failed the entrance exam. As you said, uh, Faldo <laughs> called him the luckiest of the three of us who went over cause he got to leave immediately. Uh, <laughs> so he asked to be left off the team for a match back then it wasn't like it is now it was more matches almost kind of like what high school golf is so he asked to be left off the team so he could practice for a couple days and so the coach meeting and he's just railing into the guys and he goes you know the great players they're not practicers they're players they know how to score they're not spending time on the driving range they're playing golf and it's all aimed at faldo very obviously so anyways he lets him skip the match though and take this time to practice and Faldo wins their next tournament, this like intra city Houston match between other schools. So next team meeting, the coach is like, boys, you need to learn how to practice. You need to learn how to refine your skills on the practice tee. And Faldo's like, that was basically the point he'd had enough. And so yeah, 10 weeks later, he was, he was gone. Can we just say something like Houston, like this wasn't some like dog program. It was basically like John Wood and UCLA type program, right? Mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know if they were in their peak, but like I love Faldo telling the story of basically like him telling the Houston, like, you know, bringing this epiphany to the Houston coach more or less because he was mad that they would just, you know, more or less screw around in a four ball was their only practice and then they'd go play. Yeah, and he's, he got some flack from uh english press for returning home so quickly and that kind of i think started some of the uh he paved uh, the way the- for matt fitzpatrick to not get that class <laughs> <laughs> one more thing about his upbringing you talked about how people were angry because his parents were so supportive like he was able to skip the whole like i don't know apprenticeship part of being a pro right like he he says somewhere in here he goes you know the obvious way the obvious way to like earn money if you wanted to become a pro golfer was to work in a, as an assistant in a pro shop, but only paid four pounds a week. Um, and it was insignificant enough that his parents encouraged him to work on his game. So 
he says like this was his break his big break because sitting around in his shop he thinks he would have like killed him if he yeah, had to sit around in a pro shop it's basically like an apprenticeship thing it's i mean i think being a playing professional was much more closely related to being like a club professional back then right you had things like apprentice like the Ryder cup why guys cup but uh so yeah, his parents I mean, backed just, him yeah and that's basically where his like insane practice habits start he's just go practice all day yep all right so he, so he gets back from houston uh yeah so he turns pro at 18 uh he turned pro, so he was at Houston 10 weeks, comes home and turns pro basically right away? I think, I think he played that summer. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. So has a decent first year, uh, finished 58th on the money list. It wasn't a first year. That's why he was able to win the Sir Henry Cotton Award the next okay. year. Okay. Uh, 1976. So he finishes T28 in the Open Championship, ties with Gary Player, um, which he said was a huge boost to his career, just kind of uh, seeing his name up there. And then he tells a good story. Uh, his caddy at the open left his clubs out Saturday night and it rained. So oh. he gets to the course on Sunday. His bag is full of clubs. And this caddy was known for like, I guess, wearing shoes. He would just take shoes out of the locker room that were laying around. Like he didn't have his own shoes. So Faldo fired Sunday morning. And as he's walking off, he realized he's wearing Faldo's shoes. <laughs> I don't know. It's definitely a much different era. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So 1977 was the big year. That's the full year, his first full year. He wins the Henry Cotton Award, uh, eighth on the order of merit. Uh, He wins twice, but I guess back then they had events of varying lengths. So he won a 36-hole event, a a 54-hole event. Um, And so it's not until the next year when he wins the British A, it's his first 72-hole event. And and actually, when he won those three in a row, Ken Brown uh, of Brownie Points fame was the runner-up in all three. Um, but yeah, then he goes to the Ryder Cup. We talk about that. He goes three and zero. He beats Tom Watson in singles in 1977. So definitely a wow. huge confidence boost. His early Ryder Cup record was insane. Yeah, he, he won th- everything. And they were, I mean, they were getting killed. Uh, so he goes three and zero, and Peter Oosterhuis goes three and zero as well. No one else had a winning record on the team in '77. <laughs> they were, yeah. Go ahead. So, so he kind of keeps putting along. He doesn't win that much early. No. Like he would, he would wins these, he'd win the Euro PGA and that's like all he would win. And then it would be another year. He'd win the Euro PGA or then he'd go two years. And then he has the breakout year in 83 when he wins yeah. five times. Well, in 78, he was second to Seve on the order of merit. So he was definitely established. I do have to tell, I don't know. I have to tell a story about his first masters in 1979. Cause that got him invited to the masters. And of course the masters, is this big event that he inspired him to play. And so I can't believe a three says this, but he says that turning into Magnolia drive is what he said. It's actually Magnolia lane. So you get that wrong. Uh, And approaching the surprisingly small gone with the wind colonial clubhouse was a desperate disappointment. Whoa. I know. I can't believe he got invited back to the champions dinner. Like they won't let him call call it on CBS this year. Maybe they won't let you're probably expecting this huge clubhouse opulent and it is a very, it's an older structure. It's a very understated, almost understated. Yes. Yeah. So you probably are surprised, but he also called, the town, been... go ahead. Uh, he also called the town of Augusta nondescript, which probably won't go well with the locals. Andy, have you ever been to a Faldo course played one? Or I did one? a drive in to one. So do, they, do they have the opulent clubhouse? If he's disappointed by the Augusta, no, it had like a, a trailer. It was oh. the it's the one. It's it's a mile from Prairie Dunes. 
Is that like the one it, where he got lost on his way? No, no. that's in England. That's in England. Uh, this this one course is for sale. It's like a mile from Prairie Dunes. It's in like this unbelievable dunes, sandy dunescape, and we drove in, and there's just like all these containment mounds and fake ponds, <laughs> and and we drove out. There was nobody in the parking lot. It it, it was it was kind of depressing, and, and you just like. That'd be a good course to buy and just completely redesign because the land's so good. Oh, that's good. All right. So, uh, go ahead. If I, if I may, I don't know if we're already <laughs> skipping ahead to 83. Let's go to 83. So, well, let me, all right, let me get in this real quick then before we go. So from 80 to 82, he finishes fourth, second, fourth on the order of merit. His worst finish in the open from 1980 to 84 is T12. And in 1982, he starts working with a sports psychologist, but doesn't tell anyone because he thinks everyone's going to think he's a nut. Uh, and he says, this is kind of one of the recurring themes in the book is that he's actually not this Iceman character. He wants to no. set the record straight. So he says, I eventually perfected the popular image of an Iceman, whereas in reality, strip away that armor and you will find a softy who gets emotional watching Mary Poppins. Uh, he <laughs> says it was a defense mechanism, this, this uh, mechanical you know, character that he portrays, he calls a defense mechanism uh, to create a barrier between himself and the outside world but that's the thing that was so funny is like you'd read these articles of there's very few people that knew him really well but they all were like oh he's not at all like what everybody says he's like and it's like so he they i guess he was super into horoscopes yeah uh loves kids loves gossiping Kids, let's just like kids. I mean, he, 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 if there was like a charity that was benefiting kids, he was like, all it was just you roped him in right away. He would die. On, the, on the kids' note, uh, all three of his children were induced so that he could play tournaments. He mentions that in the book. He got a lot of flack for that. But one of them, this is at the, the we'll get to the slump when he goes to Ledbetter when he's totally re- reworking his swing. One of them was he was playing in the Dunhill Cup, which as remember that that awesome event where it was like the teams and it was like stroke yeah. match play they loved watching that on golf channel uh he needed the money he was just playing so poorly and he was in such dire straits like he had to go to the dunhill cup to get the appearance fee because he needed the money after being this great european player for so many years um here's mitchell spearman a friend of of uh faldo and uh ledbetter's uh assistant from a riley article if you're inside nick's inner circle uh, you get to know what a great guy he is. Unfortunately, he hardly lets anybody inside the circle. I mean, there was no other pro that got in the circle. No, I mean, there was no, uh, not a single professional golfer got in the, whatever this circle is. Now, maybe there were some niceties exchanged with Lyle and others, but he was, uh, whatever. He, we can get into his personality later, but I mean, he's, you know, getting room service every night. He's not out. He's not with anyone. He's not talking to anyone during rounds. Um, and we'll get to the family stuff. Riley, Riley said it is country. Faldo is about as popular as cucumber sandwiches and warm beer. In the, no, US. the United, yeah, in the U.S. Those are popular in England. Yeah, uh, not popular in the United States. Oh, see, I'm oh in this country. And yeah, you're talking about uh, yeah, when he was coming to Augusta. I missed the T. <laughs> uh, all right. Should we get to 83 then? Order of merit. Five wins. Yep. Uh, also, that's when he goes through his divorce. Uh, 
he said he says in the book and in that Riley article, he says that, you know, basically he says something along the lines of we were married for or we were happily married for six months. Unfortunately, we stayed married for four and a half years after that. Uh, and that's his, his first wife. And the the issue there was that he his wife loved travel and like, you know, going and doing stuff. And and yeah. it didn't align well with like his like. I'm on the range in putting green all day long. So yeah. she was a journalist for a running magazine who came to interview him about his, uh, his affinity for running to stay in shape. And then he says, by the end of the interview, uh, he was interviewing her. And then I guess they went out to a nightclub like the next night and it's winter and he's wearing like his Slozinger sweater with the big Panther. I think it is Slozinger, to, like, rip, underrated brand. Trying, <laughs> trying to rip the, trying to rip the logo off. Uh, yeah. Oh, you're getting hot, heavy petting. Is that what you're alluding to? No, he was trying to get the puma, the panther, whatever was off because he looked like a golf nerd in the club. Oh, I gotcha. All right. Let's let's keep it on. I didn't know what you're getting at there. Uh, you're breaking up a little bit too. I want to make sure I, yeah. we're getting the full story. Um, okay, so that was a relatively inexpensive marriage for Sir Nick. Yes. He didn't have any kids. He hadn't, you know, won majors or you know accomplish the fame of some of the later more expensive marriages all so right go ahead the big, the big thing in 1983 he plays with jack nicholas at tory pines and apparently nicholas puts on this ball striking clinic shoots 63 he's hitting fades hitting draws he's working the ball he's flagging it uh and he says that watching that round convinced him that i would never be admitted into the pantheon of the golfing gods if i did not learn to manufacture such a repertoire of shots and then actually he befriends Mark O'Meara and he goes to Texas and him and O'Meara are practicing together. And O'Meara is talking about how he, his takeaway is closed. He's shutting the club face on the way back. He's not really fanning it open. So that kind of plants the seed that maybe his, his swing needs work. And then finally the 83 open championship, he's got the lead on the back nine and he just chokes it away and, and loses to Tom Watson. See, this is another arrow point to Mark O'Meara might be the greatest player of the generation. Cause he helped to the, to the, the two greatest. So then the big thing that is kind of the uh, that leads him to seek out, you know, some swing changes and realizes that he needs to make a change. If he wants to win majors is he's leading the 1983 open championship with nine holes remaining. And he three puts 13, three puts 14 makes a big number on 14 or on 16 and ends up finishing five back of Tom Watson. And he kind of says, that's when I realized I lacked the swing and technique to win a major. So, I mean, 83, he won five times, wins the European tour, order of merit but at the same time uh is realizing that his game isn't what it needs to be and then also there's the grand marsh incident i don't know if you guys saw that in your in your research i did that kind of so this also kind of leads to some of his friction with the press so he's playing the world match play and he hits into the ball into the gallery and a spectator kind of panics and hits it onto the green and so now it's He's, his ball's on the green. He's got a birdie putt after he was going to miss the green by a, a good amount. And he wasn't able to see the, what happened, but the TV camera saw it. The fans saw it. Uh, and since the ball was still in motion when it got hit, he's allowed to play it from the green. Uh, well, then Graham Marsh is shook. He three putts. And people basically say that, you know, Faldo given him the hole or should have refused to play it from on the green. because there, And so, kind of that's where this win at all costs type mentality starts to kind of be furthered. And, and he gets a lot of criticism for that event. What did he become known as 
fold though. That was after the open. The eighty three. Yeah. Was really when that started as a fold though. Interesting. Okay. So he goes to Ledbetter, eighty four, right? Uh yeah, he wins he actually wins the eighty four RBC Heritage for his first PGA tour victory. Then he um, went down to went down to work with Ledbetter. Well, so he actually he plays eighty four uh it's not till December that he kinda is really having he, the doubts, I guess, continue to build. He says, by December, I had a voice in my head saying, you ain't got it, mate, uh, which is crazy. This guy's winning all over the world. But he says, uh, my swing was too willowy. He had a reverse C. Uh, he was kind of hitting the ball, I think, too high and too floaty. So it would kill him in the wind. And um, a lot of pros were like, he's got like the prettiest swing. People loved his swing. Yeah. yeah. Ledbetter even said like he had a swing that aesthetically looked perfect, but it covered up a lot of faults or like it looked good, but it, it was, it also covered up faults per Ledbetter. Per lead poison. At the 85 Memorial Faldo goes up to Ledbetter and says, I'm all yours. Throw the book at me. And they let me rejigging. They're hanging out at the resort. He's hitting 1500 balls a day and, and just redoing the whole thing. And he's playing awful. Yeah, what? terrible. He didn't win for what two years then? Two years. Eighty-five Ryder Cup Europe wins for the first time since nineteen fifty-seven. He goes zero and two. They're all celebrating. He's just sitting alone at a table, just kind of crestfallen because his game is so bad. I was listening to uh, to Simmons and Rosillo. They were talking about the Jordan Doc and how like how like true like great teammates. Uh, you see them when that things don't go their way and how they react to it. And like, because they were talking about Jordan when he when he got pulled because of the minutes restriction in that one game that they made the '86 playoffs out of, and uh, and Jordan was like the first guy off the bench celebrating when the when Paxson hits the buzzer beater. But this is a perfect example of Faldo, not a team player. <laughs> this is an individual sport guy. He uh, he's he's pouting when everybody's celebrating the first Ryder Cup win ever. I think he was, he seemed a little bit hurt by it. Like he was wishing someone had kind of come up and put their arm around him and said, it's okay. But uh, nobody really did. So I think he kind of felt alienated uh, by that and really actually kind of wanted some sympathy, but nobody, everyone was too busy celebrating to kind of notice. So contrast that with him sitting there in the 80, 10 years later, 85 Ryder cup, contrast that with 10 years later, 95 Ryder cup. Whereas like, his like marriage is falling apart and he like can barely celebrate. Like he got like a clinching point against strange, which we talked about the strange fiasco to kill in 95 and like his second wife. It's, it's just this, this kind of odd being unable to celebrate these Ryder cups. Cause it, the one, his wife, like, the, like she's in tears. Their marriage is like crumbling. It's like over. And she's think, like, didn't they announce like the next day that I think they yeah. announced the day after the Ryder cup that it was over. At one point she like goes, is talking to like, DL3 and couples. She's like with the American side, like confiding in them, talking about her marriage falling apart. And, yeah. and, and at one point, Faldo just like ushers her away. Like, all right, dear, let's go. Go away now. Let's go to sleep. So I don't know. Yeah, she, she was like, like, I guess, really sad, like saying goodbye, final goodbyes to people. This will be the last time I see you. Yeah, of the Euro Tour kind of crowd, the the players. So, anyways, just just that that kind of triggered my memory of the, these kind of being unable to celebrate or, or these weird and odd scenes after winning a Ryder Cup ten years. Apart. A similar thing happened at the '96 Masters, where he yeah. he gave Norman the hug and and said, "I'm so sorry." Yeah, and then yeah. like in the in the post the cell like the Butler cabin, they both there were remarks about how bad they felt for Greg. 
Yeah, Crenshaw too. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's go. So he does the Ledbetter overhaul. 85, Ryder Cup, he's struggling. 86, uh, he doesn't win. Uh, the big turning point is seven. Uh, he's in the Atlanta airport, and it's Masters week. And so apparently all the European players and press are arriving, and they're landing in Atlanta to go to and he's in Atlanta for a layover to go to Hattiesburg, Mississippi to the Deposit Guarantee Classic, which is the forerunner to the Masters. Sanders. Sanderson. Sanderson, Sanderson Farm Championship. Sure. So he, he finishes second to David Ogren, and that's kind of the turning where everything starts to click. You know where David Ogren uh, is from? Texas. Waukegan, Illinois. One of, one of the sure. famous Illinois golfers of all time. Fantastic. Thank you there for that. Hey, you know, I like it. Not a lot of people know about David Ogren. <laughs> You're one I think of them. He was sponsored by Zevo at one point. <laughs> there you go. You, you got somebody here on the line that does. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right. Uh, so, so anyway, so the 87. So then he goes on to win the ship over Azinger with 18 straight pars, which further cements the like robotic, um, you know, persona that, you know, he wins a major by just making all pars and, you know, no flair and just kind of beats them to death. So, I mean, that, that, that's, you read that Riley opener at, at the very start here, Andy, about like how he never really got credit, even these major wins. And this is like, so 87, now he hasn't won 86, 87, I think he won the Spanish Open. Uh-huh. Was it and, the French, Sp- and the French. Yeah. Yeah. That he, Spanish Open, he, he credited as a big turnaround, turning point, too. Yeah, kind of as like it started to click a little bit, and then he wins the '87 uh, British at Muirfield, um, the or the Open Championship at Muirfield, I should say. Uh, I, what do you guys have on that? You want me to go into on that a little bit? We can we can go in. Let's go in on the on the Open. I got some stuff. So this is the start of like his this reputation of just being this boring guy that wins majors because other guys blow up, you know, we're get the Hoka's and choke and uh, Floyd hitting in the water. And Norman, obviously 96. John, John cook cookie <laughs> yeah. uh, at what was that? Muirfield the second time around, but just, this is the real start of it where five of the six majors, you know, people say uh, everyone, but the St. Andrews one, it's, we talk about like kind of the implosions of the other guy. And it starts with 87 British Open. He finally gets his first uh, major championship. Not finally, you know, a decade into his career, I guess. A decade after winning Rookie of the Year. Um, but he gets it because Azinger goes bogey, bogey on 17 and 18. Fowler didn't birdie all day, as Sean just said. When, um, 18 straight pars. He's known as Nicky Foldo again. So, so Azinger kind of becomes the focus of the. Granted, you know, Faldo becoming, you know, winning the British Open, winning the Open Championship, winning at Muirfield after so many close calls becomes the story. But like, initially, like the fascination is with Azinger. He's like this sort of like he's this boat barnacle scraper and guy who wasn't had a truly different, unique path to becoming a pro. All of a sudden, winning a ton of cash before this Open. I think it would have been his first, his win in his first ever uh, open appearance. Yes. Uh, joining Hogan, uh, Lima, and Watson, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and Azinger's just, 
you know, given his quotes, right? He's like throwing all his sayings. He's already, it's early in his career, but he's got, you know, one-liners for everything. And he's, and meanwhile, they're Fowler's the same, just, they're the same one-liners he uses in the booth today. Fowler's just going 18 <laughs> pars and it's like, eh. you know, he, he won it because the other guy bogey bogey. And apparently Faldo was a, a whole ahead, one group ahead. He was in scoring and couldn't watch on the 18. Azinger yep. couldn't get up and down from a bunker to save par. Loses the open at Muirfield. Um, but like one thing I noticed about early on too, in addition to other guys throwing it away, is like there always seems to be horrible weather. Like yes, it's just this cold guy. Like there's a ma- I think his first Masters. It was like frigid and rainy and gray. And Muirfield, um, there was a lot of that. Like. It, it was like 50 degrees and blowing at least one of the days. They're just like the characteristic of every early major is a, like he was like the boring plotter that just let other guys collapse and be like weather that made it a little dreary. Yeah. Um, so that happens at Muirfield. Go ahead. Yeah. And Azinger when he blew, it was like distraught. Yeah. It, yeah. it was, there was a good anecdote from, uh, a Riley piece. He's smart. He wants to grow from it. He will. As he stood on the 18th green in front of the ancient Muirfield clubhouse with his wife, Tony and his 18 month daughter, Sarah Jean, uh, and a tear in his eye. Azinger looked very much like the savior who can put the game in his back pocket of his size 32 slacks and not fall over, which did not happen. Again, one more. Uh, what? Just to get into like the uh, insanity of, of Azinger almost winning his first go round, he goes. He was bent on entering, even it meant er, arriving early to qualify. And they asked him, "Is this because you feel like you're finally good enough?" Somebody asked him. He goes, "No, it's because I'm finally rich enough." So that gets into some of like the Americans. Just strange didn't go when he was at the peak of his powers in the mid '80s a couple times. Uh, not all the Americans going to the UK to play this event, either for money reasons or convenience reasons. So something that was going on here, and it goes to that Azinger comment, was that there there was this identity. There was no superstar that had emerged. The last so what uh, Nor, uh, Faldo became the 18th different winner of the last 18 majors yeah. with this win. So. You know that that was the big thing, and it, and it was like, you know, the big three of of Longer, Ballesteros, and Norman hadn't stepped up to the plate, and instead, you know, the old guys Watson, Trevino, and Floyd, and Nicholas were winning more majors. Still getting into it, yeah. And, and, and like that constant search for like the next Nicholas, and everyone just kept falling short because they were crushed by the expectations. All your like Gary Hallbergs and Sam Randolphs and. You know, all these guys uh, who just got crushed by that search for yeah, Nicholas's heir. And I think this was this is obviously an American slant since it was the American writer where he's talking about how Azinger could be the next guy. But he says this and, and the next guy is the guy that won. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was this. That's the, the one of the things I thought was most interesting about it is how he's heaping all these expectations on Azinger, who didn't win. The guy who wins the major then goes on to be the guy that of this generation. When well, you talk about Faldo being underrated, I think a big part of that is how little he played in the U.S. From '87 to '94, he only played double-digit tour events in '89. Most of the years he was playing six, seven times. You know, and a lot of that's just majors. So. In the U.S., probably underrated because he wasn't 
I never saw him. Wasn't that an objection to when they they upped the minimum events from twelve to fifteen to retain membership? He like walked off like and went to Europe and then didn't return until ninety five. I think I read that later on, like when he returned in ninety five. It was like his he originally left because they had the you know the pack or somebody had had bumped it from twelve to fifteen. I think it was he and one other european tour star they're like all right well i'm done with that i don't want i don't want more flexibility yeah it was definitely a much different time i mean there's definitely more uh i think protectionism against the players coming from abroad we'll get into this in the 1990 pga tour player of the year vote uh in a, a little bit here but yeah i think it was not it was a more of a u.s based tour and the american players liked it that way i think all right, so do you have anything else on the 87 Open? By the way, he, he won his majors two at Muirfield, one at the old course, three at Augusta National. Like, pretty stout run of venues where you'd want to win. And, and then, like, then you look at Harbor his, Town, Harbor, Rudy, yeah. all these others, that, like the non-majors, like some real... I think his other one was Colonial, right? Mm. What was this? He won... Uh, oh, Doral. Doral. Yeah. All right, anything else on 87 Open? He's no. finally off the schneid. Foldo, no more. Foldo, no uh, more. Should we and, go on to to the Masters? Yeah. All right, let's do you it. You got anything in between? 89 Masters we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in 88, he goes second, third, fourth in the last three majors of the year. Loses that playoff to Curtis Strange at Brookline. Um, yeah. We covered then, that a lot in the Strange pod, but that yeah, obviously... Very, very pro very pro USA crowd. He thinks that's why the Ryder cup returned there for 99. Cause they were expecting kind of what they got as far as a very partisan crowd. And then, yeah, third at the open fourth at the PGA and then wins, uh, the 89 masters. It's, it's things- kind of amazing that he didn't win a U.S. open considering the way his game was where he was this, like just so steady from T to green. 18 uh, pars in a yeah. Row. So 1989 masters, Matthew was induced to give him sufficient time to get to Augusta and prepare for the Masters. Wow. Do you want to talk about the what heavy? Brendan, what would your wife say if you tried to do that with the Masters? She would tell me to take a long walk off a short bridge. That wouldn't fly. <laughs> I mean, the fel- they, talked the about, they talked about how the wife needed to be a Faldo soldier. Yeah. Well, this is a great what if that Porter, Kyle Porter always talks about with Danny Willett. Westy would have won. <laughs> Westy. <laughs> you were so quick on the trigger. I, I do exactly what you're talking about. Can we talk about this birth? I mean, I thought this was one of the heaviest. That's all I got. I don't know how much more detail you want. But that's all I got on the birth. Of Matthew? This is oh, one of yeah. the he- Heaviest the, quotes we've read. Oh, there's they thought, they thought he had Down syndrome. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you would you don't get this in a you don't get players talking like this to the press anymore, or or in a profile, even from somebody that was allegedly buttoned up and doesn't talk to right. the press. Um, so there was a fear, or there was a test. They thought that maybe Matthew had Down syndrome again, born induced just before the '89 Masters. And here's what he told Rick Riley in a Riley article. I think this was. Uh, 1991 Masters preview issue with Faldo going for the three-peat. He goes, so how does a perfectionist handle Down syndrome? How does that fit in? Here's Faldo. We both believed, Gil and I, his wife, that life is hard enough without starting with a full set of marbles, says Nick. 
it wouldn't be fair to try life like that. So we both believed that if the tests were positive for Down syndrome, that we should abort it. But looking back on it now, who knows what we would have done. Um, not Without getting into the underlying issue, like just, we don't get quotes like that from this, this, he said this at the top of the world rankings. I mean, I'm sure that probably would turn a lot of people off. I'm sure, you know, whatever your feelings are on abortion, we don't need to talk about that. But I'm just talking about, I want a full view of this person at the top, whether whoever's at the top of the world rankings. I want profiles. I want, you don't need to let me into your personal life, but I just, we don't get quotes like that. And this is from somebody that's allegedly, you know, uh, Mr. Freeze, just a nice box and doesn't talk to anybody. I thought that was, uh, I was, I I wanted to talk about this too, just in general, uh, something I thought I was thinking about today while we were while I was researching was how, how many players personal lives were like, so out in the public air during this era versus now, like, we don't know anything about these guys. You know, and like the there aren't as many divorces I feel like or as many like you don't hear about divorces and and I don't know what that that comes from. But in in this era we know less and I feel like we know less about our the players than we used to know. Well, I think there's money is a big separator. They're smarter about I mean cuz granted there are more cameras and phones, camera phones everywhere now. I think they're just maybe smarter about it or I know too. sometimes players are more defensive about what they say, because then if you say something that can be snipped down into a controversial quote, the longer story isn't what will get the attention blog posts with the snippet, um, you know, that, that becomes a incendiary quote. And so because of that, guys are very careful at what they say, because something this long thought out answer but the headline will be a five-word quote that implies that you're saying something else, and then it goes viral, and you're getting hammered on social media. Let me just say, we wouldn't. I don't think there, there's a top five player today that would sit down for a Rick Riley profile as he goes in to defend the Masters, talking about how they were going to abort their baby if it had Down syndrome. I, I just don't think whatever that kind of openness or candidness doesn't exist anymore. But again, that uh, that article I recommend because. It seemed like he, you know, he really opened up to Riley in it. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I, yeah, I think so. I was trying to glean that from reading it. He had to have given Riley some time, right? Well, that's my underlying takeaway from this whole thing is I think Nick Fowler wants and wanted to be loved. He had a very contentious relationship with the British press. And we'll get into that, I think, some more, but. Like, I think he really wanted to be loved, but he just, there was this characterization of him being an Iceman. He felt like he had to be an Iceman. Like, he knew that as a golfer, you only have so many years and you have to devote your entire life, every facet of it to achieving or to try to achieve that success. So he was super driven, but deep down, I think he wanted to be loved. I think that's what you see now with like an announcer. Like, he's an announcer, I think, partly because he wants to show off that other side now that he doesn't have to worry about trying to win majors. By the way, this wife that he was, you know, having this child with, like, was the secretary of his agent yeah yeah say i mean he just started an affair i mean he with. says it yeah he says it in the book he admits it it was an affair i mean, I mean they talk said, about being in a hotel in hawaii mm-hmm. uh, for and he pretend 
answers the phone pretending to be the butler. Butler, because he's he's so conditioned by the British tabs at this point, who are like on his ass, taking pictures everywhere. There's one anecdote of uh, I think at the '95 Ryder Cup, uh, Gil, this wife later, ten years later or so, had the locks changed on a hotel after like her hotel key card wouldn't work because she thought like there could have been photographers hiding in their hotel closet. Like they're like following them everywhere like uh i think everywhere they to hawaii and this is british press going to the hawaii during the hawaiian open uh he called reporters rottweilers um just because they so aggressively like pursue stories for the tabloids um and then he talks about how when he was dating brennan black the arizona student oh, two report two reporters got arrested trying to get in one of her classes. so I mean, they were in your classroom i think and they wouldn't leave okay the Arizona, okay. some Arizona classroom taking pictures and they wouldn't leave and they got arrested. I it just, that is a, I think a different world. I think that doesn't exist anymore, but I'm not as familiar with the British. It doesn't exist as much anymore, but partly it's because everyone has a camera because everyone phone. has a camera phone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, he gets, his wife is induced. They have Matthew healthy baby boy, Matthew Faldo. I think he plays with, uh, on Sunday now before Masters Week, you know how the past champs and members still play that Sunday. I think he plays with Matthew every Sunday. I thought you were going to say the PNC father son. <laughs> I think he did in that too. I think I, I do believe they played. I believe you're correct. I'd love to um, see. I'd love to see. You know, in this hiatus, a televised match uh, between Shark and Baby Shark and and Phil and Faldo, Faldo and yeah Matthew. And Matthew. <laughs> that would get some ratings. All right, so. You can- <laughs> You think so? I don't know that it would. To be honest with you. Um, all right, so he goes to the 1989 Masters. Uh, this is cold Hoke. weather. Hoke hasn't choked. Brutal weather. Uh, what E.M. Swift talks about uh, how like the weather came down from Edmonton. This was from the SI article, uh, and sounds like how, a polar vortex. He just. Uh, what is it? There was first and foremost the weather, which seemed to have howled straight down from Edmonton, shriveling the azaleas, pelting the dogwoods with an icy rain that looked as if it had been shot from a fire hose. From the wind blowing drive on April 6th to the final birdie putt in the drizzly, gloaming Sunday, the unseasonable weather was instrumental in shaping the dramatic and fitting conclusion of the 53rd Masters. Did, did you see, like, just to, to put into context the weather and how this is crazy. So Ben Crenshaw's tied for the lead on 18 and uh, he like runs out of towels. He said, yeah, we I battled that. that weather all week. It was so it started raining. Crenshaw uh, ruefully uh his hand is shaking his head. Grip, right? I ran out of dry towels and it cost me on 18. My glove hand slipped on my five iron. He ended up in the bunker because of it. So he, I don't think they had rain gloves back then. Yeah. Well, he no. didn't have dry towels. No. Imagine not having dry towels. <laughs> 72nd hole of the Masters. Yeah. <laughs> like a, you know, now you get you wave somebody down. Give me a towel. <laughs> Uh, Slugger would bring it to you himself. Everybody, I mean, they got everybody on uh, on call. Um, so uh, did Norman bogey? So bogeyed eighteen again, right? Yeah, he did. So Made this like- is eighty nine. After eighty six, he you know sails one during Nicholas's win. Ninety six, of course, is the bigger collapse. So this was another kind of Norman bogeyed eighteen, right? Or else he would have been in. The yeah, playoff. he would have been in the playoff. He bogeyed eighteen. Okay. 
and uh, and Hoke, Hoke then they go to the playoff. Faldo shot sixty seven, right? Yeah, let's not you know dismiss. The, yeah, no, no, sixty seven was uh, ninety six, right? Six. He shot sixty five in this yeah, one. Yeah, it was sixty five. Okay, sixty five to to get into the tie. So it's not like Faldo played exquisite golf. Yeah, incredible golf. Which is a theme again in '96. Like yeah. everything, Norman's explosion was, you know, rightfully, you know, well remembered. But Faldo played his ass off in '96. In, in his three wins, he came back on the final day from three, five, and seven. Yeah, he went out in thirty-two on Sunday. He bogeyed eleven, and then he birdied thirteen, fourteen, sixteen, and seventeen, and shot sixty-five. Also, real quick, do you know who the first round leader in the 1989 Masters was? I think it was Trevino. Lee Trevino. Yeah. So this is another thing. After Azinger gets all the run, I just like they, they give him to these folks. The Americans got so much of the the of the, the ink. Azinger got all the run after the 87 Open, and maybe we're just reading American. We account. are. That's part of the problem. <laughs> it's because all the UK sites are locked up. I can't get access. <laughs> to them. But yeah, Trevino was the 36 hole leader with, with Faldo. Uh, with Faldo. And I mean, he's got mid to late 40s. And you're talking about a guy that used to skip the Masters because he couldn't play the course and didn't like the vibe and didn't oh, feel yeah. welcome and couldn't hit a draw. And I mean, there's a lot there. Just but. total opposite of Faldo, too. Like just throwing out one liners again. You know, there's something about like I was born, I was born at night, but not last night. He's like, you know, this place doesn't suit me. And it did fall apart for Trevino. Uh, what else on the 89 uh, Masters you want to get into? I just want to talk about that Scott Hoke putt. It's only like two and a half feet, but they talk about 20... how he had, he had to play it outside the hole. And I, I just and can't he, imagine. He looked at it tr- from every single angle, too. I guess it took him like he was reading it for. Well, I think he marked. And then instead of just finishing out, he didn't he mark? And the, the, Crenshaw talked about how yeah. agonizing it was to watch. To watch. Him yeah. read like he looked at it from every angle, and he was just like, "What? What is he doing? Hit the putt!" They said it was inside the leather putt. Twenty-four yeah. inches, they said inside it's a the leather. Like the Doug Sanders putt, but both of those I feel like were putts that you had to, unless you really jam it, you have to start outside the hole. And I just can't imagine at Augusta trying to feather in a curling two-footer for a Masters. It's a short putt, but it was not an easy putt. It doesn't sound like. So this is the tenth green. To be clear, first yeah. playoff hole was ten. And Hoke misses a 24-inch putt. Faldo is sitting there after shooting 65. He goes, I just thought, well, that's just opened the door for me. <laughs> because didn't uh, Faldo hit a bad drive? And didn't, he, didn't he have to get up and down from the bunker on 10? Yeah. Or or not maybe not a bunker, but from he had to get up and down from off the green on mm-hmm. 10. And what with Hoke's tucked in. Uh, and then, uh, then he cans a 25-footer on the next hole. On 11. Yeah, that whole he bo- bogeyed it all four days. All four exactly. rounds he bogeyed it. And they buried exactly. it in the playoff. It felt like destiny as soon as Hoke missed it. And he makes a 25-footer on the next hole. And uh, what do we have after that? Lyle presents him in the green jacket in his kilt. It's Lyle and Faldo and Butler Cabot. Anything else on that Masters? That's all I got. He was just really... He talks about his putty still being shaky. He's down about that, but... I mean, this is peak peak Faldo here. He's got his green jacket. He's got his open championship. And I'd say this starts maybe the best year of his career, wouldn't you say? I mean, 
not not 89 but going into 90 90 is the best year of his career yeah 90s by far the best i mean i i don't know by far but yeah 90s the best year <laughs> there's options wayne levy has something to say about that <laughs> oh, all right uh, can we talk about the just real quick mike reed was so was close to so many majors also tied there and what they wrote about em swift he goes mike reed who looks more like an accountant than a giant killer was marching along smoothly until he did what everyone expects accountants to do at this time of year. He stared down a mess of trouble and plunged in. So yeah, we never heard from Mike Reed on that Sunday. His nickname was radar. This is (laughs) Mike Reed facts. This is a, this is just another one with the hook as a choke. Like Faldo gets his major. Well, also in 89 blows the PGA allowing Payne Stewart to win. Who blew the PGA Hoke? Radar. Radar. Oh, I didn't hear you there. Okay. Oh, he All had right. a, he had a decent sized lead at the PGA and blows it to give Payne Stewart the, the PGA. T- tough year for radar. <laughs> All right. So we do 90 masters back to back. Yeah. 90 so- masters. 89 goes to 1990. He is he number one in the world yet? I don't, he's I, not. He soon was. I don't think he was number one in the world yet. I think he but, got to number one in the world. He wasn't even number one in the world after he won the Open. Oh, that's right. The world rankings just, back then, I think, was on like a three-year cycle. It was a much different time. Yeah, they crushed Norman in that because he crushed Norman. Also, real quick on Mike Reed, I want to give him his due. He did win the 88 World Series of Golf at Firestone in a playoff over Tom Watson. So, Thank, yeah, thank you. Moment. Mike Reed needed his due. Everybody <laughs> was was feeling bad for Mike Reed. All right, 1990 Masters. He goes back to back. It's just a really odd Masters. For Ray, se- Floyd, Ray Floyd is just grinded at 47. More senior tour players made the cut, or as many senior tour players made the cut, or senior tour eligible players made the cut as top 10 on the PGA Tour players. Per, I think this was another Rick Riley gamer. I mean, Rick Riley was just pumping out gamers at this time. <laughs> but it was Ray Floyd was <clears throat> the big one in 1990. He surrendered a four-shot lead with six holes remaining. He um Played it conservative on 13 and 15 while, you know, uh, Faldo was going for it. Um, Can I? Uh, go ahead. I was going to say, I want to read the lead to the Daily Mirror article about Faldo's win. God. Uh, okay. Going back into the, I mean, basically, the pre- him and the press, there is no love lost here. Uh, Nicholas Alexander Faldo began life in a small council house in Wellwyn Garden City. Uh, sadly, it remains quite big enough to stage the party when yeah. he goes home in his green jacket. The friends of Faldo are few. Yeah. The guy just won another major and just gets trashed. First guy to get back-to-back masters since Nicholas. And yeah, they, they talk about how he can go home to his modest childhood home for the party. Uh, what? I mean, can we go into the oddities of this masters real quick? Yeah, go the, into there it. Was the old, there were the old guys. Uh, this is... Sandy Lyle hit three fans, hit one in an eye, one in the head, like one in the arm. Just like Lyle is taking patrons out left and right. Uh, this is this is the 305 pound amateur from Clemson. Yeah. Oh, Billy Joe Patton. Or no, uh, Chris no, Patton. Uh, Chris Patton. Patton. Not Billy Joe Patton. This is Rick Riley writing about the 305 pounder in a way that you could probably not write about today. You definitely but- could write about it this way. 
The biggest story of the week, literally, <laughs> was 22-year-old country boy from Scuffletown Road in Fountain Inn, South Carolina, 305-pound U.S. amateur champ, Chris Patton, a Clemson senior, living out his dreams. They talk about Patton seems to have a, uh, like, he, he's, he cracks on himself. You know, he's like, you know, understands he's a big boy. So here's the paragraph. Uh, Patton never led the tournament, but he was low condo er amateur. And each day he wedged himself in and out of Amen Corner without ordering a pizza. He finished a respectable 39th, tied with the chip back and mark lie, thanks largely to his delicate putting stroke. Of course, it's easy to putt when everything breaks towards you. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wedged himself in and out of Amen Corner without ordering a pizza? What? You can't write like this anymore. (laughs) Good God. Then another oddity. Nicholas is starting. Nicholas is 50, and he's playing some like Jumbo Ozaki clubs. I think they're Bridgestones. As with most improvements for this last one, we give thanks to the Japanese. Not long ago on an outing in Japan, Nicholas was getting outstrafed on his drives by 75 yards by Jumbo Ozaki and his Bridgestone driver. The professional weapon of the Jays, Jumbo Jet and Joe Ozaki, the golfing brothers. Nicholas decided to make the weapons purchase and he acquired some clubs from Jumbo and hasn't given them back. Then Floyd, who has eight, used them too. And he hit the patches of Augusta Fairway that he hadn't visited in 25 years. Can we also talk about who played in the final group with Raymond Floyd? Who was it? John Houston. Yes. Oh, that's right. My boy. Yeah. He, he, I love John Houston. I watched so many 90s Masters recently, and he just pops up in so many random spots. John, uh, John, I, John Houston could could just get the scuba gear on and go deep any <laughs> day of the week. Criminally underrated. <laughs> um, all right. Other oddities. So, so Floyd crumbles but playing with houston did you guys read about the penny no so floyd you know we talked about couples 92 masters floyd chipped in on 14 he almost chips in a 14 and uh, 90 he goes in between on 14 floyd had a birdie chip that was headed dead for the hole but it hit a penny that houston had used to mark his ball and missed by half an inch this is the sunday at the masters said floyd Houston asked me, how's my coin? And I told him it was okay. I didn't think it was in my way, but it was. The ball would have gone in the hole if it hadn't been for that penny. The Masters that Abe Lincoln lost. That's unbelievable. Guy hits a coin. That's a birdie. I mean, that's right in the middle of Floyd's collapse. So, um, I mean, this is just Faldo versus Floyd. It's Important note, Floyd won the par three contest on Wednesday. Yes. Yeah. Maybe that's the penny. Penny gate. That's you say never win the par three contest. That's why you gotta mark your ball with poker chips. So uh I mean on Sunday Faldo gets up and down from the back bunker on twelve, which is very rare. Plugged in the back bunker. He birdied thirteen and fifteen, hit a two iron on fifth uh thirteen, I think it was. Yeah. 15, two iron on fifteen. 15. Okay. Hit it over trees. 96, I think, is when he switched to the two iron, put the five wood back in the bag. Um, now now it's like switched from the seven iron to the yeah. six iron. <laughs> yeah. So Floyd, you know, 
<coughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, Floyd. Floyd calls it like as devastating as ever been in his life. They go to they go to a playoff. Floyd is four shot lead with six holes to play. Um, what happened in the playoff? Uh, oh, he gets up and down on the first playoff. I, I don't think he got up and down against Hoke. I think I confused that with ninety. So Faldo gets up and down uh, when Floyd. You know, he hit his approach. Yeah, f- sorry. Faldo hit his approach at ten into the right bunker, and Floyd hit his seven iron to 15 feet, but Faldo gets up and down Floyd two putts. Um, and, and Faldo Floyd then tugs one hard on 11. They go to 11 after smashing with pars. Floyd tugs one really hard, just seven. I think it was a seven iron. I want to say dug into the turf, hooks it into the pond on 11. And you know, that's your masters. Uh, Faldo goes back to back game over I like Floyd saying his birdie put on 10. He, he blamed on maybe it was the dew. I don't really understand what that you gotta, you know, that's why Bryson tests uh, the dew on his golf balls. He's a spritzer guy. That's not bad. So, again, another one after Hoax missed the two footer. Floyd, you know, blows a four shot lead with six holes to play and also yanks one into the water on 11 to kind of give him the Masters on the second playoff hole. Again, the same theme. What do we want to do next? British Open? Yeah, we got to go to 90 British Open. So I'd say this is his, his I don't know, tour de force major? Which this is, is this is the win that really cemented him as the, the best player in the world. It left win. no stone unturned. Wins by five, and I know this is not the right for this, but lowest score in relation to par at a major... Uh, ever until Tiger shoots 1900 at the 2000 Open at St. Andrews. Yeah, the guys that Payne Stewart and Mark McNulty finished five shots back. Their 13 underscore would have been good enough to win every one of the previous 23 British Opens held at St. Andrews beginning in 1873. Did you see there were like heretics talking about if St. Andrews could still host the Open? This is 1990. Like maybe it should be taken out of the rota. Put, I wrote that down I got it somewhere here. Okay, some some heretics went so far to suggest that the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews, which oversees the Open, should remove the old course from the list of potential host sites, arguing that it no longer provides an adequate championship test. Uh, usually when the wind blows around here, even the seagulls walk, responded Faldo. Come play it then. This is a great course because of the because of the atmosphere. And then Peter, Tom- Peter Thompson. Yeah, yeah. the score so the score is irrelevant. Uh, Peter Thompson, a five time British Open champion and winner of St Andrews in 1955. The point is to find out who the best golfer is. Before this championship, there was a lot of debate over who was better, Faldo or Norman. Now there's certainly no question who's at the top of the tree. And that's that was the big story about this open is that Faldo and Norman both just jump out, race out. It's a two man tournament on Saturday and everybody's talking about, Oh, this is, you know, this is the showdown. We're going to get an Epic Jack, Tom Watson, duel in the sun, like showdown. And, and, uh, and Faldo just, just eviscerates Norman. That's better than him on Saturday. Just, it was like uh, it was like Spieth and Rory at the Masters a few years ago. I mean, it really is like say, yeah, this year we get, you know, say we get Brooks versus Rory at the old course next year, or something like that. It's just the the two lead dogs or two of them, and, and 
they had raced out ahead of everyone. I love that quote, though. I mean, we're talking 30 years ago. They're talking about St. Andrews might need to be taken off the road. Uh, and your boy, Peter Thompson, talking about the score being irrelevant. Yeah. And it's 30 years ago. We're still kind of, I mean, it's th- those same issues or problems that have only become more acute. So, so in, in just a couple months, so the, a month earlier, Faldo misses the U.S. Open playoff at Medina. Yeah. On the, he missed like a ten a ten footer on the on the seventy second hole that snapped at media people right yeah hit really the lip bad. hit the lip and uh, who was that that was Hale Irwin and uh, Gil Morgan who was that playoff I think it was Hale Hale and no uh, one, so. okay um but this was really like you know he would won back to back Masters and he's kind of I don't know. Could have won the o- U.S. Open. He- Mike, Mike Donald and Hale Mike Irwin. Donald. That's right. That's right. All right, so he's at St. Andrews. Here's the lead from E.M. Swift. A funny thing happened while everyone's bemoaning the lack of a dominant figure in golf, awaiting the era of Seve or Curtis or Greg, the imperious Englishman with the impenetrable personality. Nick Faldo re- retooled his swing and became one. The revelation that golf is living in the era of Faldo finally dawned on the people at the 119th British Open, held as befits such a historic demarcation at the home of golf, St. Andrews. The tournament seemed to have all the two mar- tooth marks of greatness until Faldo took the bite out of the whole affair, not to mention out of, major chi- out of a major championship pretender, henceforth known as the nursing shark, by coasting undramatically away from the field with his relentlessly masterful play. So it was five shots better than the score posted by Payne Stewart, Mark McNulty. He talked about how they, those two guys, their scores would have won the 23 previous British Opens. Um, in 70, 72 holes, he never, Faldo never three putted at the old course. He hit just one bunker. I think he had only four bogeys, three of which came at the road hall. Mm-hmm. Four bogeys the entire week. Yeah. And then, um, you talked about Saturday's head-to-head duel, Norman. A man who is somehow still ranked as the top player in the world. Faldo left his rival quivering in a gill net of three putts, beating them by nine. Cruel nine shots. I guess it just was a really rough day. I think Faldo buried the first hole, Norman bogeyed, and it was just, it was over from there. We're talking about, it's like, since he won his first Open, I think like he played in 12 majors from 87 to this 90 and he won four, lost a fifth in the playoff at Brookline and finished him on the top four, eight times, top four, eight times in 12 majors. Insane. Um, like, so this was, the, go ahead. His, that 10 year run, I, I pulled tigers and it's not, he's not tigers is insane. He's not that far off. Like, you know? Yeah. 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 And this is, um, you know, I guess it rained a ton. So it was a little softer and the wind didn't blow. But it, it was supposedly really dry. And then it rained a ton in like the six weeks right before the open. And that's why um, like 50 players broke par on Thursday. And then 86 were under par on Friday. It was just lower scores. And Faldo was considerably lower than everyone else. The, the three-jack thing that they talked about with Norman, he three-putted 9, 10, 12, and 15 on Saturday as he's getting smoked by Faldo. 
He took 39 putts total, drove into two bunkers and shot 40 on the back. <coughs> um, this was also, so Payne was the runner up and he, this is during his de- deal with the NFL. Yes. Another oddity of this one. <laughs> and, and one, uh, one like British journalist wrote, you would certainly need to be paid large sums uh, to make yourself look like a rest home for retired canaries. So <laughs> Stewart dressed like the entire NFL, like red, white, and blue logo, like the shield <laughs> for Sunday's final round. At the Open Championship, at the old course, he's dressed in the red, white, and blue NFL. Do you want to hear what, uh, what Faldo said about that? What did he say? He said, Payne, uh, Payne on Payne Stewart's American, and this is from the Riley article uh, before the, uh, the Masters in 91, he, he ripped a few players. This is like part of the reason why players hated him. Yeah. So he, he said, that's like me wearing a pair of boxers with the Union Jack on them, sinking a 90-foot putt and dropping them. Dropping. <laughs> here's, uh, here's, here's some other stuff while we're, while we're on that subject. While he's ripping other players? <laughs> yeah. So oh, there's here, some good bullets there. Here, here's Azinger on Azinger's future. It's hard to have a great champion with bad technique. It's like, and now, ladies and gentlemen, here's the great champion, Paul Azinger. He and he imitated Azinger's like odd address to the ball. <laughs> I mean, uh, just think about that today with whoever number Rory just ripping on everyone around him. I mean, top ten players, not yeah, yeah, not dogs. So on Curtis Strange's furrowed brow, brow at last year's Skins game, in which Strange won two hundred twenty thousand dollars and Faldo seventy thousand. Faldo said, "I could not believe how serious those guys were about it. I just won three hundred and fifty grand in in Japan at the Japanese skins game where Curtis got shut out, and I never mentioned that. Yet Curtis actually seemed proud that he'd won the thing." <laughs> On Norman's swing, Norman, who this is? Ooh, yeah, that was foreboding. I have to be honest. I look at his swing, and it's got faults. Under the severest of pressure, will it hold up? It's way too loose. Unbelievable. And then on Norman's fascination with uh, with Nicholas, this is some of what he does seems too obvious. Moving next door to Nicholas, tying up their boats together, design my backyard, Jack. But when he's playing with Nicholas, he's always saying stuff like, "Watch this, I'll fly Jack here, no problem." I don't know if that's how you treat a friend. So, so really, he really pops Norman in that article. <laughs> pops like, everybody. Became friends, you know. Later on, became fishing buddies later in life. Uh, all right. So we've done now four his first four majors. You want to just skip to ninety two open? Then we'll get I think, into more. Yeah, I think attitude, wives, things like that. We've gotten we've gotten quite exhaustive here. We're going. We're breaking. We'll break this six, up into two. Six, maybe. six majors is hard to cover. We may need to. We may need to record a second part tomorrow morning. Okay. All right. We're gonna call it here. Okay. You wanna call it here? Yeah. All right. We got two more majors. Ninety-two open. Ninety-six masters. We got the downfall. We've got a couple wives to cover. A couple college-age girlfriends. David Faraday. Have you ever heard the great David Faraday line? He was apparently at some banquet. This is like a wide known story. Kevin Van Valkenburg always tells me. And Faraday said, 
Uh, this is like a banquet. Nick Faldo is sorry he couldn't be here tonight, but he has a good excuse. He's attending the birth of his next wife. <laughs> uh, we also have a pretty good spat with a fellow Englishman. Who's that? Mark James. Oh, okay. All right, so let's do that. We'll do it. We'll do a second yeah, part. Yeah, we got Ryder Cup captaincy too. Oh, captain! The disaster. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a lot of like person. We want to get into his attitude and how frosty was, how angry he was, and we, it's an announcer. And as an announcer, there's a lot more on Faldo. So we did what growing up, becoming the best player in the world in his peak, which I think is the old course, St. Andrews. We'll do his last two majors and some more of the personality first part two. All right, Sean, thanks for your time. (laughs) Thank you. We'll be back.